Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my socially distant friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of exploratory factor analysis and confirmatory factor analysis, which, respectively, are not necessarily very exploratory or confirmatory. Along the way, we also mention sabbatical do-overs, Corona Academy, leeches, tall ship wine, grad school accomplishments, Roz from Monsters, Inc., extroverted statisticians, bread pudding, obituaries, the statistician's greatest insult, factor analysis party, playing with knives, and going toward the light. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. there. I wanted to ask you how you're doing. And when I want to ask you how you're doing, I mean, how are you guys doing? So not just fine, thanks. And you? Yeah. Drill down a little bit for me. Well, first, thank you for asking. This is a very strange time to be alive. Mm -hmm. We are doing really well. You know, we're home like everybody else. And uh, my wife is also a professor at University of North Carolina. It's actually kind of funny. She's on sabbatical this semester. And she was jokingly going to email our chair and say she really wants to have it again next year because (laughs) this violates every tenet of the sabbatical (laughs) with us all being home. But Uh no, we're just really, really lucky. I mean, you and I both have jobs that functionally we can't be fired from. My girls are doing great. They have their own schedules set up. They block out times for working out and for playing the piano and doing voice. I do the cooking at home and I've really gotten into that. I will put on a soup in the morning and poke out it all afternoon. And how about you guys? I might want to kill one child. <laughs> Possibly. So the other one will learn and adapt. Uh, the two boys are sort of at each other a little bit. The term online that has been used is quarantineagers. I have quarantineagers. <laughs> and <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's really nice. Yeah. Last week, we made them do homework and all of that kind of stuff. We held what we affectionately refer to as Corona Academy. This week is officially their spring break. So they're sleeping a little bit more, playing a bit and a bit more and all of that. So they're they're doing okay. The best part, though, my daughter, Sid, who had been working at Disney World until Disney World summarily dismissed everybody and mm-hmm. said, flee, get thee back to your <laughs> get to your homes. So Sydney was in the Disney College program in her gap year between undergrad and grad school, uh, came home and self-quarantined and she's doing great now and we, you know, just having wonderful times with her. We are fortunate and you realize how fortunate you are in times like this. Yeah, so. no, you're exactly right. And Greg and I sincerely hope uh, anybody who's listening right now is similarly in a good place. We're in a tough time right now, but we will be on the other side of it. And it's in a matter of weeks, I'm hoping things will at least begin to right themselves. And in a matter of months, we'll be getting back to life as we once knew it. And now is the opportunity to do things in anticipation of that. And so I think in that way, I wouldn't call it a gift at all, but it's Mm -hmm. an opportunity to be a good person. You being so nice makes this pivot a bit awkward because I wanted to tell you something that really irritated me that you did. (laughs) You know, we actually got feedback from a senior person in the field that he was Uh sick and tired of us agreeing so much. (laughs) 
And he said, I know you both. Uh-huh. You can't possibly <laughs> agree on everything. And so dedicate an episode to where you don't agree on something. So uh-huh. have at it. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree uh-huh. more, yeah. Greg. All right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really trying to orchestrate a, a full episode of disagreement. But you did say something in one of our little sponsor things that we do at the end that made me go, hmm, you know, just when I say you did something that irritates me, I know that doesn't necessarily narrow it down. Uh, so I will be more specific. I, I was going to uh, say is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've been on for like eight minutes and I have irritated you, I think, about four times. I'm looking at you, right? I I, yeah. I, I can see. I keep a list. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your wife uh-huh. was right about you when we talked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. You said something like, Exploratory factor analysis. Remember when that was important or something like that? Do you, does that does that ring a bell? It does. And what we do, we lay down an episode like we're doing now. And then I do a little bit of massaging of the text to take us down from our usual 81 minutes to something that's even remotely <laughs> tolerable. But I massage it. And then one of us does the front end blurb and one of us does the back end blurb. And the back end blurb, as you may know, are the made up sponsors. Often, and I think it's better this way, we don't vet them past each other beforehand. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> and this was one of them. And I, I too don't remember, but it was something like brought to you by factor analysis. Remember when that used to be important? Yeah. So what's the question? Like, why did I see that as a gag? Yeah. Let me just set it up here because I I want this to be a, a slow torture for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, my, my reaction, my initial reaction, of course, was a chuckle, but also a... I kind of like EFA still, and um, especially because people who take one of my classes where we do seven weeks of EFA, I didn't, I didn't want them to think, wait, what's he been doing? I'd like to talk about EFA and get some of your thoughts about it and mm-hmm. maybe force you to say some nice things about it because, you know, EFA has – it has good, it has bad, uh, and whatever the other one is. <laughs> The ugly. Okay, there you go. The good, the bad, and the ugly is one of the most important spaghetti westerns ever made in the history of cinematography. (laughs) Just because you didn't pin that yourself, when I post-process this, Uh randomly, throughout the episode, I am going to drop in little clips from that movie of what are some of the greatest lines ever spoken on the cinematic screen. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. So this shall be the Uh, good, the bad, and the ugly. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, you just sort of took charge of that. Um, All right. Good good meeting, Patrick. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Give my best to Sid. All right. Yeah. So fine. Fine. Let's do that. Uh, Let's talk about exploratory factor analysis and we can, in whatever order, uh, go back and forth on the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then juxtapose that with confirmatory factor Mm. analysis, what we might consider good, bad, and ugly. Are you in? I'm all in. Okay. And you're going to cut in the quotes rather than work in the quotes yourself? 
Yeah. Okay. If you don't know the movie well enough to do the quotes yourself. <laughs> so, listeners, you're witnessing one of the cornerstones of our relationship. <laughs> There's a marital element to it. Well, if you're not willing to discipline the children, I guess I will. Mm-hmm. Could I open with an uncharacteristically defensive response on my part? <laughs> I'm not defensive. You're defensive. No. Wait, I wasn't clear which it was going to be, uncharacteristic or defensive. Um <laughs> Actually, I'll just make a very brief clarification and then we'll move into it. Notice I said, remember when that used to be important. Mm -hmm. Not that I didn't like it. Not that I didn't find it applicable. Not Mm -hmm. that I, like, remember when we used to use leeches to get rid of (laughs) bloodborne illnesses. I mean, we'll just go into it with, I adore factor analysis. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the most important things that we have in our toolbox I think factor analysis, both EFA and CFA, are verging on magic. What my gag was, was do you remember when that used to be important? Meaning when we used to pay attention to that, when we used to use that. And my argument, which I will try to unfold throughout this episode, is I think we as a field need to go back to factor analysis and need to embrace factor analysis. Hmm. That was the genesis of my gag. It was like political bipartisanship. Remember Hmm. when that used to be important? Okay. All right, so factor analysis. Holy crap, I am so utterly unprepared for this. Let me give it a go. So you can pin it back to Spearman, 1904. So Mm -hmm. we're talking something that has been around more than a century, moved into Thurstone and Bartlett and Anderson, and there are titans, titans in the field who have worked on this. Stephen Jay Gould has a remarkable... Uh, chapter on this in the mismeasure of man and we can talk about that what is his quote well yeah the the end of it is factor analysis is to put it bluntly a bitch exactly (laughs) exactly so he's mildly critical of it and says that us using it is us displaying physics envy Right. Oh, we, that's another good one. So let me mm-hmm. back up a step. Let's say that you want to develop a measure of depression and anxiety. So you bring over some of your colleagues, you buy a couple of bottles of wine. I don't know anything about wine, but I've learned that if it has a tall ship on the label. On the box. <laughs> uh, on the box. That that's a good wine. So uh-huh. So get one with a tall ship, avoid one with butterflies. And you sit around and you and your colleagues, which are now officially a panel of experts in developmental psychopathology, let's say that you generate 20 items, 10 that represent depression and 10 that represent anxiety. Mm -hmm. You believe these to be related to one another, depression and anxiety, but picture a Venn diagram with partially overlapping circles. There's something that's unique to depression, something that's unique to anxiety, but those who are elevated in depression on average also tend to be elevated on anxiety. So let's say that you come up with 20 items, 10 each. So you've got a 20 by 20 correlation matrix, right? 10 depression items, 10 anxiety. What we expect is the depression items are going to be more correlated with other depression items, the anxiety items more correlated with other anxiety items. And then they're off 
construct correlations, right? Picture that rectangle in the lower left part of the matrix where the depression items correlate with the anxiety items. Those are not going to be zero, both because of sampling variability and measurement error, but also because people who tend to be depressed may also tend to be anxious. And so there's going to be some positive correlation between those, but those are going to be smaller than the depression items with one another and the anxiety items with one another. So we got a 20 by 20 correlation matrix that is 20 times 19 divided by 2. 190. We can't make any sense of 190 bivariate correlations. So what we want to do is what's called dimension reduction. We want to take 190 of these bivariate correlations and try to reduce it into a lower order dimension that we can make some sense of and do something with. What you want to do is reduce the dimensionality of the problem to a smaller number of dimensions that are scientifically meaningful and pragmatically useful to us in some way, but that that reduction is done in a way that does not undermine the fidelity of that original correlation matrix. So we don't want to over-reduce it. We don't want to say, ah, there's this one dimension, we're going to add up the 20 items, divide by 20, and that's everybody's score. And so the exploratory factor analysis is entering into this foray by saying, well, let's look at this 20 by 20 correlation matrix, and let's see how few dimensions can we extract from that, and it's literally called factor extraction, where we mostly are able to characterize that original correlation matrix, but with fewer factors. So this is an audio podcast. You can't see my air quotes on that, factors. Um, mm-hmm. These are, see, I did it a second time. Did that help? Could, did you see it the second time on your radio? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm a slow learn on this, this <laughs> platform. <laughs> So we can get into the weeds if we want. There's principal components analysis, principal access factoring. We can have maximum likelihood estimation. We have all of these things. But the goal is to say, all right, it appears what we would anticipate, there are two major factors that underlie these 20 items. One is predominantly defined by the 10 depression items. One is predominantly defined by the 10 anxiety items. But those two factors correlate with one another. If we allow them, that's called an oblique solution. If we impose orthogonality, we don't allow them to correlate. But gold standard is you allow them to correlate with one another. There are a couple of reasons that we go to all of this trouble. Even though we sat around swirling our tall ship wine in our glasses and said these are the 10 depression items and these are the 10 anxiety items, we don't know that, right? Maybe there's an item that's a double-barreled question. Maybe there's a depression item that wants to live with the anxiety items or an anxiety item that wants to live with the depression items. What I encounter a lot in my work is you get orphans, right? There are a couple of items that don't want to hang out with either depression or anxiety. The exploratory factor analysis says, speaking to the data, what do the data tell us about how the items want to cluster together with one another? So it's giving us the structure of those items, but then what a whole lot of us want to do is to say, all right, well, I had two orphan items. I've got eight left on depression, 10 on anxiety. I'm going to add these up, divide by how many there are, and take them to a path model or a growth model or something like that. So there's one purpose is 
what is the underlying dimension that the data speaks to us, and another one that's a very practical one. What are the items that appear to define these constructs in a univocal way, as sometimes the term you have is a depression item does not equally indicate both depression and anxiety. It's univocal in that it's speaking to the depression construct, and take a mean and then go do something with those. That was much longer than two minutes. <laughs> I was going to say I like a lot of what you said, but I'm supposed to disagree with you. What are you trying to say? Anybody can miss a shot. Nobody misses when I'm at the end of the rope. You never had a rope around your neck. Well, I'm going to tell you something. When that rope starts to pull tight, you can feel the devil fight your ass. Yeah, you're right. It's getting tougher. So let me tell you what's wrong with what you said. So first of all, the thing I love about Spearman is that he invented factor analysis while he was in graduate school. So anybody out there who's in graduate school, <laughs> what have you done? Huh? What have you done? <laughs> well, that's like with the mathematicians, as they say, if you haven't made your great discovery by age 21, you're yeah. not going to. <laughs> There's that great quote by Tom Lehrer, entertainer slash social scientist, I would say. And he had a great line that said, it's a sobering thought that by the time Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for two years. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the description that you gave, I'll tell you, I did like the fact that you treated factor analysis as a bucket of methods. Factor analysis isn't one thing. Factor analysis is a collection of tools that go by the same name. And it can be argued whether or not for example, principal component analysis is factor analysis at all. Um, there are people who will argue vehemently that it's not. I am not one of those people. I consider really? it. Yeah. Principal components analysis is not factor analysis. Well, what is factor analysis, Patrick, since you never told us what it was? It's not principal components analysis. <laughs> okay, good. Um, you're right. Principal component analysis does not yield factors. But that doesn't mean it can't provide insight into what those factors might be. And so if we define factor analysis as a collection of tools that help to provide potential insight into the underlying dimensions, then principal component analysis would fall under that description. When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. So in your example, you went into it with uh, the generation of was it depression items and anxiety items. Mm -hmm. Where was the exploratory in what you described? Can you clarify what was exploratory? I will make an argument that exploratory factor analysis is not exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis is not confirmatory. Discuss. <laughs> if we can just establish those simple truths. Why I argue it's not exploratory is because we self-righteously swirled wine in our glasses while we said, well, Beck's cognitive triad of depression would predict that these dimensions of negative affect are important to the theoretical construct of depression. And so we need to generate 10 items that are consistent with Beck's theory of depression. We didn't just randomly generate items. We didn't go to MTurk on Amazon and pay somebody out in the world half a penny to fill in 500 randomly generated items. 
it is framed within a theoretical model of we have, you know, Beck's model of depression, and we have Fowe and Kozak's model of anxiety disorders, and we're going to generate those ideas. So very deductive, very theoretically based that generated the ideas. The exploratory is we've got a barn full of horses and we kick open the doors and shoot a pistol in the air and let them all run out. Then we step outside and you and I say, well, partner, where'd the horses go? Mm -hmm. And some horses are kind of clustered in one part of the pasture. Some horses are clustered in the other part. It's exploratory in the sense that we have fit no a priori structure to how we believe that these items are going to relate to one another or to the underlying factors. This is hang them all and let God sort them out mm-hmm. kind of approach. I'm really going to do the good, bad, and the ugly as we, yes, we go are, through here. Yes, you are, because you're hitting just about all the major plot points. Glad they got him. A man guilty of all those crimes. People with ropes around their necks don't always hang. What do you mean? Even a filthy beggar like that has got a protecting angel. <laughs> So that's what I mean by exploratory is we are going to allow the data to speak to us as to how it wants to hang out. We do have to identify how many factors we want to extract. So we can Mm -hmm. look at a one or two or three or four or five solution and compare and contrast those. We have a wickedly complicated thing called rotation because of the way that the EFA is defined. Any solution is mathematically equivalent to any other solution, which means we can rescale the factor loadings in ways that are useful to us. We need another method of rotation like a freaking hole in the head. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of rotations out there. But at the end of the day, we do not impose a structure on the data. We allow the data to speak to us as to which items want to hang out together and be associated with which factors. That's what I mean by exploratory. Yeah, I would I would agree at great peril. I would agree that there's not a ton exploratory about exploratory factor analysis in practice except for the mathematics of what you're doing, at least initially. When you press go... Uh, according to the the internally defined rules, it is it doesn't care what you're studying. It doesn't care that it's anxiety. It doesn't care that it's depression. It's just going to give you something that helps to explain your pattern of correlations. And it's one of an infinite number of things that could explain the pattern of correlations. And here's where you where you very quickly leave anything exploratory. In fact, it wasn't really exploratory from the start because you were the one who brought those items to the table. As you said, you didn't randomly generate stuff on MTurk. In fact, if you go back to Spearman, he had French and musical ability or pitch discrimination and English. and he, he had a relatively diverse set of academic measures. We could argue exploring the data, although I think there were some, some notions about a single factor and intelligence and all of those kinds of things operating. But you choose the items. You may press go on exploratory factor analysis, but you start to use your own filter very, very quickly. You might look at any one of a number of rotations. You might make decisions about orthogonal versus oblique rotation. Dear God, don't go orthogonal. There's almost, in my view, there's almost no reason to go orthogonal. I don't know if you disagree on that. There's never a reason. (laughs) Going orthogonal means you're forcing the latent variables to be uncorrelated. Do you know what you're going to get if you do that? Uncorrelated latent variables. It's You Mm -hmm. made it that way. 
go in oblique rotation, and that allows the factors to correlate. And if it's truly zero, those correlations will go to zero. You didn't impose it. They'll just obtain those values numerically. Oddly, neither of us have talked about is the sample, right? Mm -hmm. Is not only do we have theory in developing the items and the scales and what do they represent, and as you say, Jiffy goes to SPSS and with his (laughs) nose does little Jiffy factor analysis, which, by the way, is where Jiffy got his name. That's right. If you if you zoom in on the tweet where we had the first picture of Jiffy before he had the name Jiffy and you look at the screen, he was doing the equivalent of a little Jiffy factor analysis. I believe it was Chris Preacher who pointed that out. <laughs> so not only do we have theory and, and a prior expectation about the items and the theory and the construct, but we have massive commitment to who is the population in which we're interested and how do we sample and all of that. It's highly, highly deductive and theoretically based. Now, where the exploratory comes in is how I feel about this in in my own work. None of us are as smart as we think we are, (laughs) right? Our theories generally suck, right? They point the ship toward the setting sun and say depression is over there. No theory talks about, well, what is the commonality? What is a potential cross-loading? What is a univocal versus bivocal tapping into underlying constructs? What of these items is the most salient, the least salient? Right, theory is very Mm macro-based. I had a real example like this that I was doing with colleagues that's very similar to the depression and anxiety, and we had two orphan items that no matter what we did, they just didn't want to play with any else. There was factor one, factor two, and then these orphans. And we read the content and thought a little bit about it, and they both represented what we then, in 2020 hindsight, identified as social withdrawal, right? Mm. So they weren't depression, and they weren't anxiety, but they were this withdrawing from social interactions and groups that were their own little factor. But my point is, in our swirling our wine glasses, we thought that these were depression items, but when you subject the 20 by 20 correlation matrix to a spectral decomposition procedure and extract an eigenvalue and an eigenvector, they said, yeah, we don't want these two with us. Mm -hmm. And so that was theoretical motivation then to say, all right, these items were not behaving in the way we intended, and we actually dropped the items. And it became fodder for future item development to say, well, could we come up with half a dozen more items that tapped into social withdrawal where we can treat this as a construct on its own? So that, Mm -hmm. to me, is the exploratory part. We're really, really good at what we do up to a point, Mm -hmm. but then we often need to ask the data what it thinks of our Mm -hmm. items, not just what me and my wine-swirling friends think. Then I have a question for you. Why do depression and anxiety correlate? Oh, wow. That is a great question. And a lot of people throw things at one another in this very topic. From everything that we've talked about to this point, I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. There's some underlying developmental ideological mechanism that leads an individual to express depressive symptomatology, to express anxiety, and what that underlying mechanism is is not apparent to me through the factor analysis. What I Mm -hmm. would want to do is to say, 
have I adequately obtained a numerical assessment of this underlying theoretical construct that I call depression and I call anxiety, and can I go do something with that to answer your question? Is there a genetic underpinning? Is there some stress diathesis model where an individual has some propensity to respond to the environment in a maladaptive way that only arises if they're embedded in a particular context or environment? Is it learned? Is it maladaptive coping mechanisms? The EFA doesn't tell me that. Yeah, it doesn't. So this lens that we look at everything through, in in the case that you described, the lens that wine-swirling lens of depression and anxiety is filtering a lot of the decisions that you're making along the way. And if you submit your data to an exploratory factor analysis, my guess is you are going to get the mother of all first components or the mother of all single factors operating here, in part by virtue of the fact that anxiety and depression do correlate. And so then you're left with this position of having to sort out these competing worlds. And one world is that there is some deeper, higher order mechanism that influences depression and influences anxiety. And your factor analysis is really, we'll just say, trying to tell you about that. And then you have these items that were written around your notion of depression, these items that were written around your notion of anxiety that also have additional relations among them, but those are more what we could call residualized factors, bifactors that are there. And the exploratory factor analysis model simply doesn't know that. And it can be trying very hard to tell you, no, there is one giant factor. I'm here. I'm here. And you rotate it and poof, look, here's anxiety. Here's depression. But where did the original mechanism go? And that's this whole notion of indeterminacy around exploratory factor analysis is is a challenge. And the way we often resolve it is with not being exploratory anymore, with whatever belief system we bring that helped us to generate the items, that helped us to decide how many factors to extract, that helped us to decide which items don't really fit with the others. We come into exactly what you said earlier, that exploratory factor analysis isn't all that exploratory, is it? I don't know if anything I said in there resonated with you. No, you're exactly right. And this is why I find factor analysis just so fascinating and verging on magic. So when I teach this, I wrote a little few lines of code in SAS where I generate a three-factor solution. So it's very, very easy to do. So you just draw multivariate normal random deviates off of some distribution and you build it where they're correlated with one another. And so you have uh, uh, three continuous normal draws that you believe are these latent variables variables, and then you write some simple algebraic equations that bounce them up to the items. So you say y1 equals 0.7 of the true factor score plus some error, and y2 and y3. I do this for three underlying factors and six or eight items for each factor, and then I build in a couple of cross-loadings, and you build this n by p data matrix. You have 500 people You have eight items per three factors, so you've got a 500 by 24 data matrix. And I feed that in, I bring Jiffy in, I shake the Crazen thing. You keep them in a little Tupperware and you shake it and Jiffy will come in. 
and you have Jiffy sit at SPSS and click it with his nose and damned if you don't get back Mm -hmm. exactly that structure that you built in by doing what we're talking about. I mean, it is magic in Mm -hmm. how this works. So when would you move from an EFA to a CFA? So picture Mm -hmm. in your mind's eye, you've got a factor loading matrix. So remember the factor loadings are really regression parameters that link your item to the underlying latent variable. So you have a latent variable with a single-headed arrow leading to an item, and there's a regression coefficient for that. That's the factor loading. All right, Mm -hmm. now we have the minor, minor problem that we don't have the latent factors in our data file. We only have the items. And this is why a lot of biostatisticians roll their eyes and say, oh, please, Mm-hmm. And then if you're in a kind of a wiener mood, say, really? So your residual variance is a column in your data matrix. Oh, it's uh-huh. not. It's inferred by the model. Oh, that sounds a little latent. And, you know, then you're off to the races. The way I figure, there's really not too much future with a sawed off front like you. Partnership is untied. Oh, no, not you. You remain tied. I'll keep the money and you can have the rope. <laughs> But picture the factor loading matrix where you have three factors, so you've got three columns, and you have 24 items, so you have 24 rows. In the EFA model, all of those loadings take on non-zero values, or at least they can. They're freely estimated from the data. It's saturated. All items load on all latent variables. In the CFA, you invite back your wine-swirling friends... And you sketch this out on a sheet of paper and put it on the coffee table. And you say, we've got to fix some of these to zero. We're going to restrict the factor loading matrix. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say the depression items load on the depression factor and the anxiety items load on the anxiety factor. But we're not going to let the depression items load on the anxiety. And we're not going to let the anxiety items load on the depression factor. We're going to fix those to zero in a wait for it, confirmatory fashion. Mm. Somebody might say, but wait, I thought depression and anxiety related to one another. And you say, oh, it absolutely does, but only through the correlation between the two latent variables. We've got individual variability on depression, individual variability Mm -hmm. on anxiety, and those those latent factors can correlate, but the items themselves are only going to be tethered to their home factor. Right now, it's a whole new ballgame because we've imposed restrictions on the parameter space and we have introduced what is now a testable hypothesis, all right? And now we can say, well, what damage have I done to the fidelity of my observed data by imposing this structure on the model? And am I willing to accept that amount of damage? Mm -hmm. Or is it more than I'm comfortable with and I need to refine that in some way? As I feel you transitioning from the exploratory world to the confirmatory world, which is a good thing for us to do, a quick bullet point summary I ask of you. Exploratory factor analysis. The good? What's the good? Oh boy, you really are going to make this a pop quiz. The good. Yeah. Yeah. What are just a couple of good things that you would say about EFA? 
EFA is a mathematically principled method of dimension reduction that allows us to go from a large amount of information to a smaller amount of information to give us an insight into our data that would not otherwise be possible. Nice. I like that. The bad and or the ugly, I, I view those as sort of smushed together. If, if you can parse them. Great. I can parse them, actually. The bad, and we can talk about this for days. And mm -hmm. given that we're all quarantined at home, maybe we'll just do that. <laughs> I will try to do it in one sentence. The bad is the process that I just described can be deeply affected by idiosyncratic characteristics of the sample that may not generalize beyond what we studied in our own data file. And that's the bad. The ugly, there's a huge potential for misuse of this in practice. Not necessarily malicious, but there are a lot of subjective criteria that are invoked in everything that we've talked about that you can say the scree plot was examined and we determined that three factors was the optimal number for our data. Well, if three factors is consistent with your theory, and maybe it's two and maybe it's four, but three is sure what you thought it was going to be, nobody's going to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. So I think the ugly is... There's a degree of subjectivity that we can unintentionally use in a self-confirming way that maybe would not be done if a more objective analysis of the data were conducted. There are two kinds of spurs, my friend. Those are coming by the door. Those are coming by the window. Take off that pistol belt. Can I tack some on there? Oh, please. I think exploratory factor analysis is a useful tool in a very restricted space, in a controlled space. I don't think kitchen sink exploratory factor analysis is useful. I think it's important that you make decisions about sets of variables that you have a reason that they ought to go together. When you throw a bunch of junk in there, there can be all kinds of mechanisms that are driving their interrelations. Factor analysis essentially has no choice but to suggest factors to try to explain. You could have a system of variables where X1 causes X2, which causes X3, which causes X4, which causes X5. A mechanism that has nothing to do with factors at all. And you can subject that to a factor analysis and it says, dang, you got yourself one mother of a good first factor. So factor analysis has the, the good, bad, and ugly habit of showing you factor explanations for things. Uh, the bad and ugly being that even when there aren't factor explanations, you know, you know, truly factor explanations for what's operating. So I think factor analysis is, is very useful in a defined space. And you're right that sample does shape some of what you get. The variables that are present to some extent can shape what you get. The researcher who is doing the factor analysis can shape what you get. But I do think it's an important exploratory tool in our tool belt. I mean, heck, you guys, by you guys, I mean University of North Carolina, you guys hosted the 100-year birthday party of factor analysis, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. That was Didn't pretty cool. It was in 2004. And Bud McCallum, who is a titan in the field and was a student of Ledyard Tucker and is a remarkable guy, he was director of the Thurstone Lab, which is where the quant program is that I'm in. <laughs> I was a punk-ass assistant professor, <laughs> mostly just trying to eat all the prosciutto that they had put out, you know, because I, I love prosciutto and couldn't afford it at the time. Um, uh -huh. But yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. And you know what you just described could almost have been cut into the episode that we released yesterday on mixture models. 
is your mm-hmm. your line about you know how you have the thing on your door where the kid from Sixth Sense says I see mixtures as you can say I see factors and as we alluded to in the mixture episode Gibson who has some really wonderful work in the 1950s analytically showed a direct link between exploratory factor analysis and latent profile analysis where mm-hmm. they are one in the same. Yep. There's indeterminacy, as we said, between those. All right. So with your permission, I am going to formally transition us into the CFA world. You did a nice job, I, I would say, by laying laying it out, going from a world where everything loads on everything to a world where you have some control over it. I will also say, <laughs> just in reference, I did not make it to your factor analysis party because I, I got to say there there ain't no party like a factor analysis <laughs> party. The joke I like is how do you tell which statistician is an extrovert? Um, and that's the person staring at someone else's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. We're transitioning to confirmatory. Yes. And, and I'm going to add a little bit of historical color commentary Ooh. to this. Confirmatory factor analysis, I would say, and you can you can correct me on some of the details, but it You're was... Oh, what about the... No, that too. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for that. So people had worked on what was loosely called confirmatory factor analysis for, you know, 40s and the 50s. And I think it wasn't officially nailed until the 1960s, the mid-1960s, by Carl Yorskog, um, who, again, was in his 30s. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But he was from Sweden. He was at ETS for a while. A couple of historical points. One is that Carl Yorskog's first name is not Carl. He was named KG, just with initials, which to me sounds incredibly cool. And in Swedish, it would be Koge. And when he was at ETS, the story goes that someone, as he's filling out paperwork, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, the Pixar movie Monsters, Inc. I imagine Roz. Roz was the secretary of Mon- Monsters, Inc. And I imagine her saying to him, you can't have no first name. <laughs> um, so as he said, he picked something that sounded very regal and Swedish. So he went with Carl. Uh, and so hmm. in the U.S., he was known as Carl. I did not know that. And I will also tell you that I had the absolute terrifying pleasure of co-teaching with him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was um, doing a workshop that included confirm some confirmatory factor analysis stuff and he was there in the room and people would be asking me questions about confirmatory factor analysis and it was all i could do not to look over at him you know it's like you you want to take this one right (laughs) but but he let me sweat through it and then he talked more about categorical confirmatory factor models but it was uh very very surreal and another personal note was that i almost never ordered dessert I will order bread pudding if bread pudding is on the menu. It's one of the few desserts that I that I really love. He and I were out to dinner, and he didn't want to eat a whole bread pudding, so we shared a plate of bread Aww. pudding. I know. I had a moment. Years ago, we were at a conference in Monterey, California, and we were driving up to a restaurant, and people were just getting into cars, carpooling up, and pretty much anybody just got into a car that had an open door, and I got in, and as we're pulling out, it occurs to me that Peter Bentler is driving, Carl Yorskog is in the front seat, and I'm sitting next to Michael Brown, 
<laughs> as we're driving up these cliff edge roads. And all I can think of, if we were to plunge off of the cliff, the entire world would miss three quarters of us deeply. <laughs> there, there would be three obituaries. <laughs> I'd miss you. You introduce confirmatory factor models very nicely in a sense that we exert control over the pattern of loadings that we wish to have. And in fact, there's more control we can exert than just what's zero, what's what's not zero. We can impose certain constraints. We can have flexibility in, you know, you had mentioned some items that might be measuring something beyond depression and anxiety. Was it social withdrawal? Yes, or something you had mentioned, we can model those kinds of uh, additional relations. So it's an incredibly, incredibly flexible framework that falls under the name confirmatory factor analysis. Given that we've sort of provided an overview of what it is, and I think given what we talked about in exploratory factor analysis, we can be a little bit quicker in cutting to the chase about what's good, bad, and ugly about it. Where would you take us? My opinion is EFA and CFA are much closer to one another than (laughs) what is often talked about in the literature. Indeed, you can use CFA to get EFA, right? So the statistician's greatest insult is your model is a special case of my model, (laughs) right? Them are fighting words is, you know. I can do everything you can do and more. Yeah, exactly. Uh Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, your model is nested within mine. That'll get you punched (laughs) in the face at a conference. (laughs) I'll try the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Mm -hmm. the good is we now can exert control over the parameter space. So not only can we fix factor loadings to zero, we can do pretty much anything we want within identifying constrictions. We can estimate loadings that are equal to one another. We can estimate some factors that are correlated and include factors that are not. So we can move to a bi-factor model. I've done some work where we have multiple indicators of substance use. Four are alcohol-related and four are one of marijuana, one on opioids, one on stimulants, and so on. And we have an eight-indicator latent factor, but then we have an orthogonal four-indicator factor that only influences the alcohol items so that alcohol doesn't hijack the underlying factor. The good is we are now masters of our domain. But are you still master of your domain? I am king of the county. You? Lord of the manor. I'm queen of the castle. I can put single-headed arrows, dual-headed arrows, equality constraints, whatever I want. The bad, well, it's not really confirmatory. Maybe Mm -hmm. the very first model that we estimate is, and maybe even not. What if you do an EFA and identify the optimal structure and then take that structure to a CFA on the same data? All right, ooh, I don't know about that. But also, it's only CFA of the very first model that you estimate and examine your test statistics and standard errors and p-values, because if you do anything... If you introduce a correlated residual because the modification indices suggested that it was there, if you mm-hmm. add a cross-loading, if you introduce an equality constraint, if you have a residual that's near zero and you fix it so that you don't have a negative variance, it's no longer confirmatory, and you probably shouldn't call it that. Part of the bad is I can make any model fit well. Anyway, if you give me crap data by lunchtime, I can email you 
a model that fits well because all I have to do is just keep throwing parameters at it. The ugly maybe is the presentation of that crap model as something that I knew the whole time going into it. It's a priori and it's confirmatory, right? We mm-hmm. build this little fort out of equations and chi-squares and RMSEA and says, well, this was a confirmatory factor analysis. I couldn't call it that if it wasn't true. I think the word confirmatory kind of dooms us from the beginning, not just in these types of analyses, but in other types of analyses as well. I think it's completely true that exploratory factor analysis, even though we can think of exploratory methods as defining one end of a continuum, in their practice, you're not really near the end of the continuum. You're using filters that pull you in more toward the center. A purist, I think, would say that confirmatory factor analysis really should be the other end of the continuum, and you impose a theory, and you assess it, and you use your fit indices, and you get out an answer as to whether or not it's the right model. By the way, it's not the right model. But you're right. You, we don't usually just go, oh, bummer. All right. Well, thanks. You listen to your data. Your data might be telling you the right thing. Your data might be telling you something that you take to mean something else. But we really do pull off that confirmatory end of the continuum and come a bit more toward the center. And when you do that, you are letting data fit, data model fit, be your guide. You are not letting truth necessarily be your guide, although you do it in the name of truth and you say, oh, that modification makes total sense. And the devil on your other shoulder says, well, if it made so much sense, why wasn't it in there in the first place, right? So we practice these these things that have the label of confirmatory in only a semi-confirmatory way. Once we do that, the truth is that none of our p-values really are true anymore because the p-values attached to things are, are really only true initially, right? And once you start modifying the model and making changes based on the data that you have, those hypothesis tests that are associated with specific parameters no longer are the initial hypothesis tests that you have. All of that said, I'm okay with that. Oh, absolutely. I think the biggest issues are how is it presented to the reader? If you have a four-factor CFA with two cross-loadings and three correlated residuals, it's not confirmatory. There's no theory on the face of the planet that predicted three correlated residuals among these particular items. I mean, maybe it's better to think about, well, is it an unrestricted factor analysis or is it a restricted factor analysis to get away from the exploratory and the confirmatory? Because you're absolutely right that if we truly want to be confirmatory, it's a one and done. Mm -hmm. You define the model. You estimate it one time, and that's your model. And what I would argue is that's not how science progresses, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's not a one and done. You do have that initial test, and you should present that to the reader. You should say the hypothesized model was estimated as described above, and the fit was an airplane cartwheeling down the runway. The chi square is 10 times the degrees of freedom. <laughs> the Tucker Lewis is negative 0.3. I mean, <laughs> present that mm-hmm. and then embrace that as an opportunity to say, examining the characteristics of the empirical data, we identified this as the optimally fitting model that best corresponds with theory. And you present that. 
And then that is one pebble in the pile of scientific progress that the next study then expands on that and the next study expands on that. Mm -hmm. I actually think there's very little that's confirmatory about that. And I am okay with it. Um, I think something I said many episodes ago by now is that I don't require researchers to be omniscient. I just require them to be honest. Tell me what you thought originally. Tell me how well that model worked. Tell me what changes you might have made on the basis of data. Tell me what your rationale is for making those changes without telling me because it made fit better. Tell me why those things make sense, which I think is actually a low bar when you have the benefit of hindsight. Put the pebble in the pile of science and then let's see if that cross-validates, whether it's you doing the cross-validation or the next person or the next person, and let that be one step in the cumulative science that we're working on. Can I throw you a curveball now because you keep asking me questions? All right, sir. What we haven't talked about, at least for a little bit, is what's the point? When I think about why do I do factor analyses myself, there are really two big motivations for doing it. One is trying to understand the underlying psychometric structure of a set of items. So we have these 20 items, depression, anxiety. What does that psychometric model represent? Are the 10 depression items cleanly on depression? Or is there some cross-loading? Are the anxiety items cleanly on anxiety? Within a set of items, what are the more salient ones? Are there some items that are more indicative of depression, some that are less? So they're how strongly related are they? And then we have the invariance episode is, do those items hold the same for boys and for girls? So again, in your mind's eye, picture that factor-loading matrix, the EFA, all the loadings are freely estimated, and the CFA, some are estimated and some are not. Well, now in your mind's eye, expand that. There's one factor loading for boys and one factor loading for girls. Are those the same factor loadings? Are they different values? Do they even want to relate to different factors? So one motivation is to understand the underlying psychometric structure. The other one is what I tend more toward. I want to use it as a highly sophisticated calculator to get scores. And we talked a little bit on a prior episode, the wait, wait, don't tell me mm -hmm. one, which my daughter <laughs> named, by the way. Mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> Given all that I just said, how do I combine the items in some scale score that I can take to some other kind of analyses? Here's my curveball for you, though. And mm -hmm. it's based on an anecdote I briefly raised in a prior episode and just reminding you what that is. I'm good friends with a colleague of mine at Carolina. They came in with a data problem that they were working on. They had a rather small sample size, uh, maybe 120, something like that. Sorry, I just dropped a very sharp knife that I've been twirling in my hand. <laughs> I kind of stabbed myself. Symbolic. Symbolic. Uh -huh. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh -huh. yes, it's when I use the analogy of playing with a knife, is it's yeah. a horrible <laughs> habit I have. And Greg can attest to this, is uh -huh. I twirl knives at my desk and I probably shouldn't. So, she came in and she had a well-established measure that she followed the code book on computing the scales. She was doing some rather straightforward regressions and the effects were coming out opposite of what she expected. So I did an EFA on the original items and it did not correspond in any way, shape or form to the putative structure that was described in the scoring manual. Mm -hmm. When I did an EFA and extracted the solution that the sample wanted, it was mm -hmm. completely different than what the code book wanted. What do I do? There's a lot going on in that question. 
one has to do with whether or not the sample of 120 people is even from the same population as the norming sample that gave rise to the original instrument. Another has to do with just because the original instrument might have been developed based on a thousand people, it doesn't mean they actually knew what the hell they were doing. There's a lot of instrument development. If we say this is a very well-established instrument, okay, well, how was it well-established? You go back to some of the original work and you go, wait, they just took a bunch of items and computed an alpha across a set of items and called it done. All of that is fine to say that, well, maybe the original work was poor or maybe the sample is from a different population. I would have a lot of pause with going forward with what the guidebook says to do. For me, anytime you are using an established instrument, the first order of business is to make the case that the population for which that instrument was designed is applicable to whom you are studying. And if you are studying someone different, I think it's reasonably incumbent upon you to see whether or not the established factor structure even holds for your population. And if it doesn't, then you need to press pause on your science because otherwise I have no idea whether or not you are computing something that's even remotely meaningful. For me, that would have been a reason to say, I think we need to take a time out here and see if there isn't a bigger problem. If there's somebody out there now kind of listening and staring out the window and is looking for a paper to tackle, I think this would be a good one because I don't have an answer. Mm -hmm. We cannot proceed as a science if we renorm every scale to the idiosyncratic characteristics of whatever sample is in front of us. I would never argue doing that. We again have the Hancock scale of toxic masculinity, <laughs> and it's 20 items and three underlying factors. If you have those 20 items, we can't proceed in a principled fashion by every use of that scale doing an EFA ideal for that sample and then saying, I use the Hancock scale because everybody's using a different ruler. Now, that said, when I looked at her data and looked at how the items wanted to relate to one another, and then what structure was imposed by the scoring manual, those two were incompatible. And so to say, I have this measure of construct A, B, and C, and here is how they predicted this distal outcome, I think was invalid. I don't have a good answer for that. I did my usual, this is the like last vestige of the damned for any quantitative methodologist is, well, what does theory say? And that's a total, it's your problem, not mine. Right. <laughs> kind of thing, which it's not, right? This is analytically, what do we do? And I think where she left off was, this sample is too small and is not representative of the population that I thought it was. And she ultimately walked away from the problem. And I think that was probably a good decision. That's a high road decision. It is, but it's also a major senior person mm -hmm. who this was a side thing that she was interested in and she just turned to the next thing she was doing. What do you do mm -hmm. if this is your dissertation? Yeah, That's a whole nother ball game. So if you're looking for a paper to do out there, I think a thoughtful exploration of what do you do in this situation would be a welcome contribution. I have no answer to that. And I would say, you know, the issues that you raise really speak to the vagueness of this continuum that we call the exploratory confirmatory continuum that 
you know, as we've already said, you're not at one end or the other. You, I think, have to balance realistically. You have to balance the models that you have with messages that your data might be giving you, at least to the extent that they are interpretable, and proceed from there in some cumulative process, whether it's that curveball that you're hit with when the colleague walks in and the factor structure simply doesn't hold, or when it's small aspects of your model that don't really appear to be functioning particularly well. I think that we can't ignore what our data tell us. And we also can't entirely abandon theory, right? Theory is a prior. And that prior has a certain amount of weight and new data might give us a different posterior, but we have to decide how much weight we're giving to one versus the other. So what we're offering here then as we wrap up is we have clarified that exploratory factor analysis is not exploratory and confirmatory (laughs) factor analysis is not confirmatory (laughs) and you should be careful in how you use it. Mm -hmm. So we hope today's episode has been of use. Yes. Thank you for the good, bad, and ugly of factor analysis. Any any closing comments that you have for I, us? I do, as I'm kind of staring out the window. I don't think I ever answered your question of why did I do the gag is remember when that was mm-hmm. important. I don't think we ever got to that. And the, ouch, I did it again. <laughs> okay. We got over. a bleeder. We got a bleeder. <laughs> So maybe just very briefly as an exit point of why I meant that as a satirical joke is Mm -hmm. given everything that we talked about, I feel like in a lot of applied research, nobody talks about these things. You and I both review lots of substantive papers. We're on lots of committees of people outside of quantitative And I would say in my anecdotal experience, but it's a pretty big anecdote. I I review a lot of papers and I'm on a lot of committees. Rarely, if ever, does someone raise, what are you going to do to examine the psychometric structure and the scales that you're using here? The classic line is, I'm using the Hancock scale that has been shown to have good properties. Mm -hmm. And my gag of remember when that used to be important was this was how we approached construct validation and measurement. And now it's almost, well, I could have done a factor analysis, but it's beyond the scope of the current work. Prior research has demonstrated that this structure is adequate. My concern is it'd really be great to go back and re-embrace some of these concepts from the 1930s, because I think we've lost sight of that. We've gotten so excited with our growth mixture model that we're perfectly fine just taking a mean of five items, even though maybe they don't want to play together. Mm-hmm. All right. I need to uh, go get a Band-Aid. <laughs> you're, you're getting kind of pale, actually. I, Mom? <laughs> you, Mom, is the school bus here? Go, go toward the light, Patrick. Go toward the light. Okay. Most friends would say walk away from the light. You're telling oh. me to walk toward the light? <laughs> Hey, thanks, everybody. And we hope that you are staying safe and healthy and you take care of yourselves because we are going to be on the other side of this and we will be better people for it. Yeah, and we'll see you there. Everybody take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Put your drawers on and take your gun off. I'm very happy you're working with me and we're together again. I get dressed, I kill him, be right back.
Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and leave a review. Also, please tell your friends. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. And visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. You have been listening to Quantitude. We were practicing extreme social distancing long before it became cool. Today's episode was brought to you by our teenage children, whose mood swings capture the essence of randomness beyond anything we could ever simulate. By the normality assumption, la 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 la, I can't hear you. And by Quantitude Hand Sanitizer. Play an episode for 15 seconds and microbes will die out of sheer boredom. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.